All right, well, welcome to part two of Welcome Home. And if you're our guest, we want you to know, first and foremost, that we're just so honored that you've joined us for this series. Our prayer and our heart is to be a place that embraces you so that you can feel the unconditional love of Jesus in your life and the unconditional love of having other people who are following Jesus around you, not only on a weekend, but through life. And I've been experiencing that lately because uh, I'm going through a little bit of a temporary health struggle. It started two weeks ago. Two weeks ago on Saturday, I started feeling lightheaded and then I started feeling dizzy and then it started falling over. <laughs> but I had, there was no reason for me to be doing that, okay? Some of, you, some of you know those feelings for other reasons, but that's not what was happening. And uh, so after about 24 hours, this kept getting worse. Eventually, I could only crawl to the bathroom. And even when I would crawl, I'd have to lean up against the wall to get my bearings. So uh, by God's grace, he provided a specialist in the area who specializes in vertigo. And that guy put some goggles on my eyes. And he was able to tell from my eye movements. Because the weirdest thing was that my right eye would just look off in other directions. It was like it was out of control. I couldn't even focus to read. Um, and so we went in there kind of hoping it would be the, hey, do these few little exercises and your vertigo will go away. And it wasn't that diagnosis, but it also wasn't uh, you have a brain tumor diagnosis. It was this middle condition called vestibular neuritis. He said, uh, it'll be at least three weeks until you can preach again. It'll probably be a couple months till you're fully back to normal. Uh, and at first... Uh, I was kind of angry when he told me that because I'm thinking, man, God, you know, I, I eat right, I exercise, I'm trying to do your work. There's people out there who are like robbing convenience stores. They don't have vestibular neuritis, <laughs> you know. Why did I have to get it right at the beginning of us launching this new series to welcome people into the church? But that's actually what we're talking about today is how God can work good from the bad situations in our lives. And I don't know in your life, maybe you're going through one of those situations that, uh, like for me, this vestibular neuritis, this is not the hardest thing I've been through, but it is what I'm going through right now. And you come here today, and for some of you, you're going through the hardest thing in your life, a divorce or a diagnosis of something like cancer or something far worse than what I've got. Some of you are in that hardest moment of your life. Others of you, you're not in the hardest moment, but what you're in, kind of like what I'm in, is very real. It's with you when you wake up. It's with you all day long. And no matter what you're going through, I'm excited to share God's word with you today because God wants to speak into those very pains and struggles into our lives. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about me before I start, especially for those of you who are new. Let me introduce you to my three kiddos because you'll hear me talk about them on occasion, Jack and Zoe and Evie. Here's Jack, he's our eight-year-old, Zoe's our six-year-old, and Evie just turned four. And no, Jack is not choking them, it looks like that in the picture, but he's just, uh, you know, he's just loving on his sisters there in the picture. But uh, I know a lot of us had kids and grandkids just start school in the last week or two. I want to give a shout out to all of our teachers and administrators in the area. Yeah, we've just got amazing schools. Amazing schools in this area, and our kids absolutely love it. They're having a blast. Uh, we were taking a picture like this over the summer. Do you guys remember what dabbing is? So if you've got you know, kids or grandkids, it's, I don't even know how to do it, okay? But it's some kind of thing that they, they did. I figured it would go out of style, and apparently it did. Because the other day, uh, we were taking a picture. I said, Jack, why aren't you dabbing? Because for about a year, 
I mean, we could have been at a funeral taking a picture and Jack would have dabbed. Like he, you know, that's all he ever did. And all of a sudden he didn't. And so I'm like, Jack, why aren't you dabbing? He looked at me very seriously and he said, dad, dabbing is dead. <laughs> so just so you know, you know, uh, you know, according to eight-year-olds, dabbing is now, is now a thing of the past. But here's the thing. When I look at those uh, three little ones, when I see their faces or when I hear them laughing in the house or torturing each other, whatever they're doing, it's a constant reminder to me of God's ability to bring good from the difficult things in our lives. Uh, and here's what I mean. I won't go into detail today. Some of you know more of the detail and emotion of the story. But before these three kids, my wife and I had more than one pregnancy where the pregnancy would start well and would go for a while and where we lost those children, those babies will meet in heaven someday. And I only bring that up to say that in those moments, not knowing that these three kids were in our future, it was an unthinkable pain. And it even seemed like an unbearable pain. And in the moment, the thought that God could somehow bring good from it just almost sounded like a cliche or almost sounded like a trite Christian thing to say. It didn't seem like real life. But what I've experienced in my health, I've been through worse things than I'm going through right now, and with my children who I have now, is that God does have the power to take the unthinkable pain you're going through right now and to turn it for unimaginable good. God does have the power to do that. And so the question we're asking is how do we, when we go through a hard time, how do we make sure that happens? You know, uh, you could put it this way. How can we bring good from the worst situations in our lives? And I don't know what your worst situation is right now. Uh, here's what I've learned in life. I can't control if pain comes into my life. That's out of my control. And as much as you try to control your life, you can't control if pain comes into your life. It will. But here's what you can control. You can control whether or not it gets turned for good. And that's what I want to talk with you about today by answering this question, how do we do that? How do we make sure that the worst situations in our lives are turned for good? And what we do here every weekend is we wrestle through the hard questions of life like this. And whenever we get to one of these questions, we look into the Word of God because the real answers that will change your life are not found in me or in any other person. They're found in God and in God who came to this earth as the person Jesus Christ and who gave us His Word. And what we've learned here is that His Word speaks into the real crises and trials of our lives and it gives us comfort and direction that we can't find anywhere else. So let's look at one of many passages that answer this question. I've actually written a whole book about this question. If you're our visitor today, we'll give you one on your way out. Go to our connection corner. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. This is just one verse that speaks on this. It's probably my favorite. Because this verse is the end of a long story of a man named Joseph who went through unthinkable pain and rejection and suffering. And I'll tell you his story in detail later. Uh, but the summary of Joseph's life is that he was betrayed by his family, he was sold as a slave, he was physically abused, he worked his way up from nothing only to be lied about and have it all ripped away and be imprisoned because of a false accusation. And yet Joseph continued to believe that God was for him 
and that God could bring good from what he was going through. And Joseph's difficulty did not just last for a few months or even a few years. It spread across decades. But as Joseph continued to give to God what he was going through, God continued to repurpose the pain for good. And at the very end, toward the end of Joseph's life, he was the right-hand man, the number two in command of all of Egypt. And this is when Egypt was a significant uh, regional superpower uh, with hundreds of thousands of soldiers and hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And Joseph ended up being in charge of the whole thing in a way that never could have happened if he hadn't gone through his hard times. And I'm speeding you to the end of the story where there's this moment where Joseph meets those people who had sold him into slavery early in his life. And he knows that they had wronged him, they had abused him. He doesn't overlook that, but he says this, you intended to harm me, but God, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. An older translation of this verse says, you meant it for evil. What you did to me was evil, but God, who's not the author of evil, meant it for good. In other words, God didn't send the evil into my life, but God had the power to take the evil and repurpose it for good. And I put the evil you did to me, I didn't hold on to it, I put it in God's hands, and he repurposed it for good. And as Joseph says this, he's sitting in this position of power, and there's a famine, and nations are starving to death, but Egypt had stockpiled food, and now Joseph is in charge of the food, and he says, God brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Joseph's unthinkable pain, God never minimized what Joseph went through and he doesn't minimize what you're going through. Joseph's unthinkable pain turned into an unimaginable victory in the hands of God. His greatest tragedy turned into triumph. Why is it that that happened? And here's what we're learning today. It happened because of one word, surrender. Surrender is the ingredient that transforms our tragedies into triumphs. Surrender is the ingredient that can transform what you're going through right now into something that only God could do. You see, as Joseph was in a prison and when Joseph was in a pit, he didn't know how God would work good from his suffering. He just believed that God could work good from his suffering. And as you're sitting here today, I don't know what you're going through. You don't have to figure out how God's going to work good from it. You might look at that ugly mess that you're in and say, there's no way. I can't imagine how God possibly could bring good from this. That's how Joseph must have felt. You don't have to figure out how. You just have to know who and trust that he can bring good from even the greatest evil and the darkest evil that's in our lives. But the key to activating that, the key to making it happen is surrender. Would you guys say this little phrase together with me? Surrender is the ingredient. All right, very good. Let's do it once more. Surrender is the ingredient. Very good. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, surrender is the ingredient. All right, I want to tell you Joseph's story in a little bit more detail. So Joseph was born uh, into a family where he was one of 12 boys and there was one sister, that poor girl. Could you imagine being one sister with 12 brothers? So Joseph had 11 brothers and Joseph was toward the end. He was the second to the youngest of the brothers. And Joseph's dad really admired him. Joseph's dad kind of had a favorite and it was Joseph. 
Well, his brothers saw this, and um, as would typically happen, they got jealous. And it probably started with kind of some teasing and some poking and maybe a little punch when dad's not looking. But over the years, um, Joseph started to become isolated. And these brothers, it was them against him. And they started to hate him. Well, one day they were out on their land. Their family owned a lot of land. Joseph was in position to inherit a lot of land and a lot of livestock and animals and servants, which were um, kind of the currency of that day. And Joseph, you know, he had a fairly comfortable life ahead of him until the day that his brothers, the hatred in their heart, uh, turned to uh, murder. They decided that they were going to kill their brother. So these 11 brothers of Joseph, or 10 of them at least, they decide they're going to kill Joseph. They're going to take a bloody, uh, you know, bloody his coat up and take it back to their dad and say, hey, Joseph got attacked by an animal. We'll never see him again. And they said, what do we do with the body? Hey, let's just throw Joseph in this dried up well, this deep pit out in the desert, and we'll just leave him there to die. We'll take his coat back to dad. Dad'll think he's dead, you know, and, and that'll be the end of us dealing with our annoying brother. Um, so they beat Joseph. They throw him into this pit. And then they see off on the horizon the dust of some traveling group and as would often happen in that day they decided let's wait and see who this is so the group arrives and as they get closer they can hear the noise of heavy crude chains and shackles it's a roving band of slave traders and these slave traders most likely had slaves from all over the region they probably had some african slaves because egypt is in north africa they had some slaves who were from arabia different races, different tribes, and different languages, slaves who are shackled and who are being whipped by a slave driver as they march their way to Egypt to be sold in the slave market. And as Joseph's brothers see this slave train arriving, they think, hey, if we sell Joseph as a slave, well, one, we could make a little money. Two, we won't feel quite as bad because we're not killing him. Uh, and three, there'll never be a body for dad to find and figure out that, you know, he was left in a pit. So, uh, so they decide this. Can you imagine the emotion in Joseph's heart? He's been beat up by his brothers. He's been thrown in this pit. He thinks he's left for dead. And all of a sudden, a rope falls down. Can you imagine maybe this little flicker of hope in his heart of, hey, maybe my brothers changed their mind. Uh, maybe, maybe it was just a really bad prank or something, right? And, and Joseph grabs that rope and they hoist him up to the top only to sell him as a slave. I want you to put yourself in Joseph's position and think not only of the physical pain uh, as those shackles go around his wrist and then he gets marched, you know, maybe as much as 200 miles through the desert to Egypt, um, as he's looking at these other slaves who have open wounds and some of them are probably coughing and wheezing and think of the pain not only physically but also emotionally as Joseph is driven away from the land he grew up on that he thought he was going to inherit and in that moment as he's marching to Egypt everything he ever thought was sure about his life is taken away and maybe you can relate to that today. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is not a book of myths or fables or fairy tales. 
and stories like Joseph, these are true stories. And one of the amazing things about the Bible is that because they're true, there are archaeological locations in the Bible that you can go and visit today. And Egypt is one of those. So I brought with me today a few pictures of what the Egypt that Joseph was marched into would have looked like. Here's some massive statues. So if you can imagine being a farm boy with shepherds before electricity or any kind of modern cranes or tools, now you're um, chained up as a slave, you're being yelled at in a language you don't even know, you're stumbling along, and all of a sudden you march into this massive metropolis with these huge statues, and there are thousands of soldiers, and there are thousands of people milling about, trading fabrics and oils and metals and pottery, trading animals and trading unfortunately slaves because slavery was still a global norm at this point in history and imagine Joseph being pushed out onto whatever kind of slave block they had at that time to be bid on well Joseph must not have been quite as beat up as some of the other slaves because he got purchased by a person who worked in Pharaoh's household a man named Potiphar I'll show you just a couple more let's look at two more pictures from ancient Egypt this just gives you a sense of the scale of this empire um, that Joseph, it was a completely foreign land to him. Here's a picture of some ancient Egyptian pottery that actually shows the slavery and you can see the racial diversity in the slaves. They were gathering slaves from all around the ancient world to build their pyramids and to work their fields. And here's a picture of the social pyramid in Egypt at the time. The Pharaoh was treated like a god and the people were forced to worship the Pharaoh. Uh, there was no democracy, there were no human rights, there were no gender rights, there were no any kind of rights that we know about today. And the next in line was Pharaoh's officials like the one Potiphar that Joseph ended up working for. And down the line goes soldiers, down to craftsmen, down to peasants, and at the very bottom, the vast majority of the population was the slaves one of whom was now Joseph. Joseph most likely started working for Potiphar out in the fields doing manual labor, um, harvesting and digging up weeds and working with animals. And here's the thing we know. Joseph's life is summarized in about 23 chapters of the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 37, it starts and goes all the way to Genesis chapter 50. So I'm summarizing a lot of uh, material here. But here's the incredible thing about Joseph. Every time he went through one of these unthinkable injustices or evils or pains, he continued to believe in God. He continued to believe that God was for him. And it's because of that that even as a slave, Joseph was honest and he was reliable and he was loyal and he was a good worker. And so when the other slaves would stop working if the slave master wasn't there or they would steal from the owner when no one was looking, Joseph was honest and he was loyal and he was hardworking again because of his faith in God. Well, because of this, Joseph continues getting promoted. And while he's still technically a slave, he ends up becoming the person in charge of all of Potiphar's estate. So Potiphar likely has multiple different fields of livestock and animals, uh, a massive estate with hundreds or even thousands of slaves, and Joseph ends up being in charge of it all. Uh, if you guys think of Alfred and Batman, you know Alfred the butler? Joseph rises from being a slave who doesn't know the language by working hard. He does everything he can. He keeps making the right choice. He rises all the way up to where he's essentially like the butler 
in Pharaoh's house. And yes, he's technically still a slave, but he's eating the same food as a Pharaoh would eat. Uh, he's reporting directly to Potiphar, who's you know, rich and he's living in a comfortable house. He's made the most of what he could with his circumstances. And then his life takes another turn where things completely out of his control happen to him. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, she seduces Joseph. Uh, and Joseph does the right thing. He says, no, I, I can't do that to my master and I can't sin against God. I'm not gonna sleep with you. Well, when he turns down Potiphar's wife, she gets in a rage. She's so upset that he rejected her. So she goes to her husband Potiphar and she lies about Joseph. And she says, this Hebrew slave that you let live in our house, he attacked me and he tried to rape me. And Potiphar believes his wife and Joseph, who's falsely accused, who has worked his way up from nothing, immediately with no justice, with no even chance for him to explain what actually happened, gets sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. So, you know, I wonder if some of you relate to that moment in Joseph's story where you do the right thing and then your life falls apart. You do the right thing and your life falls apart. You work really hard to do a big fall launch to welcome people to connect to God and then you get some weird, bizarre sickness that, you know, rapists and murderers don't have, you know? <laughs> That's just an example. It's just, it's just one possibility. But I, but I don't know, you know, where it is in your life. You know, if you live long enough in this broken world, you'll have times where you choose the right thing and then whether it's in the supernatural realm from... Satan and his demons or just from evil people, you do the right thing and then your life gets worse in the moment instead of getting better. Maybe you can relate to that. Well, Joseph, as he's in prison, does not give up on his relationship with God. He continues to believe that God is for him and that God is with him. And even in prison, Joseph has this dynamic prayer relationship with God, so much so that the other prisoners know wow, Joseph really is able to tap into God and connect with God. Well, one of Joseph's fellow prisoners happens to be a baker who worked for Pharaoh. One day Pharaoh must not have liked the bread or something and Pharaoh sent his baker to prison. And so Joseph, again, he can't control his circumstances, but he can control that he's gonna trust God, be faithful, be loyal. Same thing kind of happens in prison. He's still a prisoner, but all the guards see, wow, Joseph is helpful, Joseph is loyal, Joseph is honest. And Joseph kind of gets in as, better, as good a position as possible within the prison and meets this baker. And, and long story short, Joseph helps the baker connect to God in some ways that the baker couldn't. And eventually, one day, Pharaoh says, hey, whatever happened to the, you know, some kind of cake that I used to have? And they say, well, you sent that baker to prison. And Pharaoh says, oh, well, bring him back out. I want that cake again, okay? So Pharaoh recalls the baker, and the baker starts working for Pharaoh again. And then one day, the baker overhears the Pharaoh saying, I've got this problem I can't solve. And the baker realizes that's exactly the kind of thing Joseph could do. And so the baker tells Pharaoh about Joseph, who's now down in prison, and Pharaoh says, bring that guy to me. There's this beautiful moment when Pharaoh talks to Joseph and he explains his problem. And Joseph says this, he says, I can't fix your problem, but my God can. And that moment tells us that through all that he'd been through, his faith had only grown stronger. 
And Joseph goes to God and God does give the answer that Pharaoh needs and Pharaoh sees God's blessing on Joseph and Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're no longer living in the prison, you're now gonna live with me. And just like happened in Potiphar's house and in prison, Joseph is loyal and he's honest and he's faithful and Pharaoh continues promoting Joseph until Joseph is Pharaoh's right-hand man. He is in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph sees from the wisdom God gives him that a famine is coming and he stockpiles food. I mean, just years and years worth of food. And this famine arrives. And now all the nations around Egypt are, are starving to death. And Egypt has more than enough food. And so they start selling grain for gold. You know, they start um, just profiting off of this. And one day, these 11 guys come in dusty and starving. And Joseph is now on a throne, an elevated throne with stairs. And there's probably some, you know, dogs and cats around with jewelry on. The Egyptians would do that. Joseph has the ornate Egyptian jewelry that a ruler would wear. There's servants who are fanning Joseph. There are soldiers around Joseph. And these 11 dusty guys stumble in, starving to death. And they start begging to this Egyptian ruler, would you please, we've brought gold, we've brought silver, please sell us some grain at any price. And as Joseph is hearing them talk in the language that he used to speak when he was a boy, he realizes these are my brothers. And Joseph is so overcome with emotion in that moment that he tells everyone to leave. All, all the soldiers, all the animals, every, get everything out of here and he just breaks down crying. And he has this moment where he looks at his brothers through tears. They still don't realize who he is. And he says that verse we saw at the beginning, you intended to harm me and you did. What you did to me was evil, but God. You did it for evil, but God. And there's things in your life right now you need to know that person who did that to you, yes, it was evil. In the spiritual realm, the fact that we get sick is because this world is broken by Satan. It's because of his evil. Um, there are forces, pain will come into our lives, but God has the power to repurpose it all for good. And Joseph, who in that moment could have, with a snap of his fingers, had his brothers killed, or more creatively, if he really um, had chewed on his bitterness for years, he could have thought, you know, I'm going to recreate everything I went through. And all 11 of them will go through it. Whip for whip, shackle for shackle, rejection for rejection, pit for pit, prison for prison. I will recreate the whole thing. He could have done that. He had that power. And in that moment, why is he able to forgive them? Not because of just him. But because of his relationship with God, he sees God use this. He still misses his mom and dad who he loves so much and his sister. And he breaks down crying thinking, now because of what I've gone through, I'm in a position to give food to my family so they don't starve to death. And Joseph sees the hand of God not as the source of evil, but as the power that can bring good from evil. Well, I'll just mention really quickly here that our desire for you as a church is for you to be reading God's word on your own. Every weekend, I'll do my best to teach it to you. But I just want to quickly give an advertisement for my favorite Bible. It's called the Life Application Study Bible. And we have these available in the lobby. And the reason I say this is if you've never had a Bible that you feel like you can understand and speaks to you, 
this is a great one to start with. And I just mentioned that because I've given you a very small bit of Joseph's story. And I'm going to give you now three very quick lessons from it that we can take. Uh, but as I mentioned, you can read Genesis 37 to 50 for yourself and get a lot more. But here's three quick lessons. We learn, number one, that God had not forgotten Joseph. God had not forgotten Joseph. And I have to believe that some of you are here today because you need to know that God has not forgotten you. When Joseph was laying in the bottom of that pit and he thought he was left for dead, God had not forgotten him. When Joseph was dragging along, chained to other slaves, God had not forgotten him. When Joseph worked as hard as he could to take the lemons and turn them into lemonade and then he's falsely accused and everything's pulled out from under him and he's sent back to prison as he's in that prison, God had not forgotten him. And maybe, for, maybe there's just someone in this room today who needs to know that God has not forgotten you. He sees what you're going through. He knows what you're feeling. Scripture says he's near to the brokenhearted. He upholds those who are crushed in spirit. You need to know that God has not forgotten you. Secondly, God was not the author of Joseph's pain and evil. Was it God who whipped Joseph when he didn't walk fast enough as a slave? Was it God who put the shackles on his wrists? Was it God who threw Joseph into the pit? No. These things all came from the free will of other people who chose to do evil. And some of you, you're, you're here today and someone has wronged you or you're going through a difficulty and you've been thinking, God must not like me. But God brought you here today to tell you, not only does he like you, but he loves you and he cares about you. He's not forgotten you, he's not abandoned you and the pain that's in your life is not from God, it's from evil. Uh, even sickness, like what I'm going through right now and previously in my life when I've gone through harder illnesses, it doesn't mean that, you know, you sinned when you get sick. When Adam and Eve, way back at the beginning, when they chose to believe Satan's lie, Satan is an unseen supernatural force who is at work in this world. Jesus said that he came into this world to steal and kill and destroy. And when he deceived Adam and Eve into turning away from God, they opened a door and contamination came into this world. And as a result, we all get sick and we all die eventually. It doesn't mean God's punishing you. It means you've been broken into a contamin you've been born into a contaminated world. You need to know God's not the author of your pain or your evil. But here's the most important thing we learn from Jesus or from Joseph. God was able to bring good from Joseph's pain. God was able to bring good from Joseph's pain, but here's, here's the key. Joseph didn't have to figure it out. Joseph didn't have to make it happen, but there's one thing Joseph did have to do for his pain to get repurposed for good. There's just one thing, and what is that? He had to bring the surrender. Joseph had to bring the surrender. And so here's what you need to know for you. God has not forgotten you. God is not the author of your pain and your evil in your life. And like Joseph, God is able to bring good from it. Like I mentioned, I've seen this with our three kids. Back when we were going through miscarriages and losses of little ones, we never would have thought the day would, would come when we'd have three amazing, beautiful kids in our house. 
I used to have a medical condition far worse than the one that I have now, but from it has come, one, it really has whipped me into shape overall in my overall health, but two, I can relate to people who are hurting like I never could have before. Um, and three, God let me write a book as a result of that that we'll give you at our Connection Corner if you're our guest. And that book God has used to minister to tens of thousands of people who needed to hear from God. God brought good. Every bad thing I've gone through in my life, God has brought good from. And I haven't had to figure it out. I haven't had to make it happen. All I've had to do is surrender. And what I'm going through right now is temporary. It's not the hardest thing I'll ever go through. And I don't know what good God's gonna bring from it, but I know that good will come from it if I continue to surrender to him. I wanna give you a, a picture of this because I, I know I'm uh, a little bit skeptical in my nature. I used to work as a journalist and maybe you're here today and you're a little skeptical and you're like, okay, that all sounds cute. Good for Joseph, good for you. Um, but you know, what does this actually look like? How could evil be turned for good? So I'm gonna give you a picture of this and I'm actually gonna go to the world of sports. I wanna give you a picture of a force that is deadly and a force that to most of us would be frightening if we were to come face to face with it and how it is turned for good. Now did you know that in Major League Baseball when a pitcher throws a pitch at 88 to 103 miles per hour, did you know that that's fast enough if that pitch hit you in the head to kill you? Actually, this happened in August of 1920. A New York Yankees pitcher threw a fastball and it hit Ray Chapman, the batter, in the skull. And 12 hours later, Ray Chapman died. This was before they had helmets. And so here's the thing. You know, when we watch it, some of you get this because you work in motorsports and auto racing. And you know that when someone watches a car race on TV, they don't really understand the force and the power and the noise and the speed compared to if you're sitting at the edge of the track and you hear it and you see it for yourself. And it's the same with baseball. If you're watching a baseball game from the stands or on TV is one thing, but for the catcher and the batter and the umpire, they understand the speed of a 100 mile per hour or a 95 mile per hour fastball as it hurtles through the air with enough power to literally kill you and it's coming inches from your nose and your face. Did you know that Major League Baseball every year brings in about $700 million times 10, okay? $7 billion, uh, and all of that money comes down to one tiny little piece of real estate. I think, man, $7 billion, that's gotta be some expensive land. It's less than an acre, okay? It's actually a few inches. This piece of real estate is called the sweet spot, and this is the spot on the bat that makes home runs happen. Uh, when a pitch is coming at 95 miles an hour, if a batter can connect not just his bat, but the sweet spot, then he has a home run, guaranteed. Doesn't matter if it's a curveball, doesn't matter if it's from a lefty southpaw pitcher, doesn't matter what it is. If the batter can connect the sweet spot of the bat, uh, then you've got, you've got a hit and probably a home run if it's if it's fast. So what is the sweet spot? Well, I brought a bat up here to, to illustrate for us. So uh, you can actually, let's look at one of these training bats. Uh, so that's a training bat that has the sweet spot identified. And actually what a lot of college and professional athletes will do is they'll look at video of their stance and their posture and their grip on the bat and they will adjust their grip so that they can be sure that they're connecting with this sweet spot on the bat. Now here's what I want you to think about in your life. 
the trials that life throws at you create a sweet spot opportunity. It's all about how you connect with your trials. Now, here's the thing. As you go through life, sometimes life will lob you a little softball trial. You know, here's an underhand pitch softball lob of a trial. Uh, Like, for example, maybe like me, you didn't grow up with much. And so that motivates you to work hard. And you're able to take that difficulty you went through and you're able, in your own power, you're able to kind of hit a home run from it. Because, you know, you used to be lonely and so now you really appreciate the people you have. You used to have nothing and so now you appreciate what you have. And there's certain things, difficulties that life lobs our way that in our own power, we're kind of able to hit the home run. It's like, yeah, I can do this. But here's the thing. And this is hard for us to admit, especially some of us personalities and especially some of us guys. If you live long enough, life will throw you some fastballs that are like major league speed that if you're honest, you can't turn it for good in your own strength. And here's what I mean. And I'm reminded of this having an eight-year-old boy right now, especially some of our personality types. We tend to think, oh, I can handle it. I can handle any situation. You know, I'll I'll talk with my eight-year-old about, well, you know, if this happened, it would be dangerous because of this. And he'll be like, oh, no, dad, I could handle that. And some of us are are that way in life. Some of us, you know, here's the thing. Let's just talk about baseball. Let's say it's a a true major league pitcher throwing a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. How many of us, not when you were in college at your prime, but right now, or even in college at your prime, how many of us right now could hit a home run from that? Here's the thing, the guys who get paid millions of dollars to do it, they fail 70% of the time, right? They're lucky to bat a 300 nowadays. So if we're honest, there are pitches that we can't hit physically. And the thing about life, if you live long enough, is that life will throw you some fastballs or some curveballs that you think, I just don't know how I could bring any good from this. I don't know how I could turn this for good and when that happens it's the opportunity for us to take that bat and kind of admit you know what God I can't do this one and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to surrender the bat into the hands of someone who's a little faster and stronger and who sees everything in the universe I'm going to surrender the control to the only one who could hit a home run, the only one who could bring good from what I'm going through. And that's what our trials bring to us, that opportunity. See, in the right hands, a deadly fastball becomes a home run. You know, in boxing, they say the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And in baseball, what's true is the faster they are, the further they fly. So where for me, if I'm standing on that mound, I want the ball going as slow as possible because I just don't want to die, okay? or get a giant welt. But for a professional who's at the very top of the game, the faster it is, the better. Because if they can connect the sweet spot to it, the further it's gonna fly. And here's what I've learned in my life. When I'll have the humility to say, God, I'm not even holding the bat anymore. I'm just huddled on the ground under the dust trying to not get, you know. It's like one of those machines that fires the balls. Like they just keep coming, Lord. And I can't hit them all. And I've learned that when I surrender that bat of control to him and say, but I believe you can, that's when he really does special things. That's when you see him take what's bad in your life and turn it for good. The more painful it is now, the more beautiful it will be 
when you see God repurpose it for good. The more difficult it is now, the more magnificent it will be when you see God take all that negative energy, all that evil that's being thrown at you by life and by other people, and you surrender the control to God, and you see God hit a home run, God somehow turn all that evil, I mean, think of it in baseball, all that force is coming right at you, and when it connects with the sweet spot, now all that force is going away even faster. And it's the same way when we surrender our trials to God because surrender is the ingredient. Well, I don't know which sting in Joseph's life you most relate to. Maybe it's when he was physically abused. Maybe it's when he did the right thing and everything fell apart. Maybe it's the rejection of his brothers. Maybe you're, you've been through or you're going through a season where your closest relatives or family who should be there for you have rejected you. Maybe it's when he was falsely accused and lied about. I don't know which sting in his life you most relate to. Maybe it's the physical pain of a sickness and you feel physical pain just like Joseph felt physical pain when he was whipped as a slave and when he was wrongly imprisoned. I don't know what you most relate to, but here's what I do know. God wants to do for you what he did for Joseph. And God wants to do for you what I've seen him do in my life. Remember, we can't control if pain comes into our lives. It will. But we can control if it gets repurposed for good. And the way we do that is by surrendering the bat to God. I wonder what your present pain is that God could bring good from. We all have present pains and we all have what I would call a life-defining pain. For Joseph, I think the, the prison and the slavery and the whips and the shackles, those were his present pains. But I, I really think, and this is just my opinion, we'll have to ask Joseph in heaven, I think his deepest, most life-defining pain was that rejection from his brothers. And the reason I think that is how emotional he gets when they show up. And you, maybe as we've been talking about this, you've been thinking about your life-defining pain. And I want to tell you a true story of how God has worked good from a life-defining pain for one of my closest friends. One of my closest friends, I'll show you a picture of him. Here's a guy who, when I first became a pastor, I'd been a journalist, a newspaper reporter for about five years, and God called me to pastor this tiny little church up in the mountains of Arizona. And I got up there, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and Mel and I were going through a hard patch in our marriage, and we were finally, finally... Eventually, we started to have kids, uh, and um, they were crying in the middle of the night, and life was stressful, and this guy was just a friend to me in that season. He just helped me through that season. We'd go to breakfast about once a week. He'd take me to breakfast, and he would just listen, and he'd help me, and he'd give me counsel. He'd give me comfort just as a friend, you know? You know those people who, when it seems like everyone in your life wants to get from you, and they show up and they give to you emotionally? That's how... Uh, that's how he is as a friend to me. And um, we spent so many hours together and he helped me so much. But here's the thing. You'd never know it now because he's this gentle giant. He's about six foot four. He's this gentle giant of a guy, very grandfatherly, very grandpa-like, and he's just loving to everybody. In fact, most breakfasts when we'd sit there, at some point in the conversation, he would find a time to ask me this question. He'd look across the table and we'd say, John, how are you sensing God's love for you today? And then it would just be silence. 
he wouldn't fill the air. And I'd have to sit and think, am I feeling God's love today? Why am I not? Am I too busy? You know, he's just this amazing friend to me. But here's the thing. If you could have seen him 20 years earlier in his life, he was a totally different person. He wasn't always this kind, gentle person. When he was in the prime of his life, he was still six foot four and he still wore a size 15. And he was a strong man and he was an angry man and he was an alcoholic. For decades, he was an alcoholic. And he used to own an auto shop in a town in Montana. And in those snowy and icy winters, he would drive around in this big dually pickup. And everyone in town knew who he was and knew to stay away from him because he was angry and he was violent. And he would drive from bar to bar through the snow and the ice. He was an angry, dangerous person. And what his wife didn't know and what the bartenders didn't know and what the town didn't know is that there's a reason why he was an angry and a dangerous person. And that reason is that there was a great evil that was done to him. One night when he was eight years old, one of his brothers did something to him that he hadn't told to anybody. And that brother did other things to him throughout the years and all of his life he tried to get rid of that. All of his life he tried to outrun that. And it was this sense of shame that he didn't want that thing that happened to him to define him. But it seemed like the harder he tried to outrun it, the more it defined him. And that's why he was an angry man. And that's why he ended up being an alcoholic for decades. Because he was trying to just numb away all those emotions. How is it that that angry big man that everyone feared transformed into this gentle giant of a grandpa? And the answer is this, that my friend's life was repurposed. It was redeemed. It was restored. It was redefined one night when he heard the message of Jesus and he got down on his knees and he believed that God could take all the evil that had been done to him as well as all the evil that he had done. And that if he would believe in Jesus and receive the work of what God did on the cross for him, that his shame could be washed away, his dignity could be restored, that he could have an identity not from where he came from, but as a child of God adopted into the family of God. That the shackles and the chains of alcoholism could be broken off of him. He believed that. And you see, when we call God a redeemer, this is what we mean. To redeem means to take something that is evil and broken and bad and not just set it right, but actually turn it for good. A redeemer is one who does that. And you see, God is a redeemer. Jesus is a redeemer. And for my friend Bruce, the night that he got down on his knees, did all his pain immediately go away? He still has pain, but it's all been turned for good. And now Bruce goes around telling other people about how Jesus has changed him. He's been sober for more than 20 years now. He's been a stable dad, and now he's a stable grandpa. He's been a friend to dozens of people like me. Bruce is what we sometimes in the church call a soul winner. He goes around telling people what Jesus has done for him and he has led hundreds of people to life transforming faith in Christ because uh, just of his story as he tells it to them. What is the one ingredient that transformed this guy from an angry alcoholic who you did not want to cross paths with to a gentle giant that, I mean, 
any day of the week I want to sit down and just be across the table from this guy. What transformed him? What did that? How could God take the evil of abuse and turn it into something good? It all happened in that moment of surrender. Surrender is the ingredient that transforms our tragedies into triumphs. And I want to talk with you today as we close about how to do that. How to do that. Have you had in your life a life-defining surrender moment like my friend Bruce had? Have you had a moment in life where you say, God, I, I'm going to give you not just what I'm going through right now, but all the evil, all the pain, all the bad, everything I've been through, I'm going to surrender it to you. And I don't know how you can bring good from my life, but I, by faith, I just believe that you can and I trust you that you can. Have you had that moment in your life? Sometimes we call it being saved or salvation. It's the moment where you realize, God, I can't fix my problems on my own. God, there have been evil that's been done to me and there's evil things that I've done and I need you to fix it. Romans 5, 8 puts it this way. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that is, we are born into a world of sin. We are born into a world that is corrupt and broken. And if we're honest... We all have at times done what is wrong to other people around us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see what happened at the cross is almighty God absorbed upon himself all of the consequences for our mistakes. And almighty God felt what it's like to be rejected at the deepest level and to be abused in the most severe form and to physically agonize. And he felt our pain and he absorbed our consequences and so how do you surrender to his power very simply Romans 10 verse 9 says this if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that word means God in other words Jesus I believe you're not just a good teacher or a prophet you are God and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead why does that matter well here's why it matters because at the cross he absorbed all of our pain, our suffering. He took our evil upon himself. And that's good, but if he had stayed dead, it, he wouldn't have proved that he was God. When he rose from the dead, he proved that he can take any dead thing and bring it back to life. He can take a dead marriage and bring it back to life. He can take a dead body and bring it back to life. He can take a dead career and bring it back to life. If emotionally you've just been, you know, you're at your lowest, he can take what is dead in you and he can bring it back to life. How do you surrender to God? Well, you confess your need for him. You believe in his power to do it because of what Jesus did on the cross. And scripture says you will be saved. So what is the ingredient? Surrender is the ingredient. I want to pray with you now and give you a, a moment to, to choose that with God. Father... Across this room, Lord, you see the pain in our lives and you've not forgotten us. And Lord, across this room, I just pray for every man and woman who's in here that they would know that right now you've not forgotten them, that you see them and you feel what they're going through. And Lord, you desire to deliver them, you desire to restore them, you desire to redeem what Satan meant for evil. And what other people have meant for evil. And you desire to repurpose it and turn it for good. God, if we're honest, the fastballs that have come into our lives, there's some things that have happened to us that we can't bring any good from, but we believe that you can. And Lord, we don't know how you could, 
but we know who can. And so, Lord, across this room, I just pray for a movement of surrender in our lives, that we would take that bat and that we would just place it into your hands. You've joined us today. If, if you want to just uh, sit there with your eyes closed, I'll talk to you for just a moment. You've joined us on a baptism Sunday. And what is that? Well, baptism is a, a picture of dying to our old life and being raised to a new life. So in a few moments, we'll give you an opportunity to do that. But what's most important is what's happening in your heart right now. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, you know, God's moving in my heart. I'm just, I'm not sure if I'm ready to step out. I just want to say to you, keep joining us here each weekend. God wants to keep speaking to you. Some of you are here and you've been baptized before. You've had that life-defining surrender. That's what baptism is. It's the life-defining moment where you say, once and for all, I'm giving God the control of my life. I'm putting the bat in his hands. Everything I surrender to him, that's, that's what baptism is. And, and some of you are gonna do that today. It's a beautiful thing. There's others in this room like me. You've done that. You've surrendered to God, but right now you're going through, maybe like I am, you're going through something that is present or even something from your past that's come back up. And for, for us right now, our, our, our application of God's word is to say, God, I surrender what I'm going through right now into your hands. I can't bring good from it, but I trust that you can. Now, I wanna talk very specifically to those of you right now who are contemplating a once-in-a-lifetime surrender to Jesus, like my friend Bruce, who I told you about. See, Bruce knew about the power of Jesus for a number of years before he believed, but he didn't, he didn't stop being an alcoholic. He wasn't set free and changed until the moment that he chose to believe. And I want to encourage you today to choose to believe for yourself. God gave you a free will. He's not going to force you to choose. He lets you choose. Are you going to choose to believe in his power? Here's what happened to my friend Bruce, that angry alcoholic. The moment he confessed his need for Jesus and he placed his faith in him and he was baptized, God broke the chains of his alcoholism. God set him free from the shame of what had been done to him. God forgave him for the evils that he had done. And God gave my friend Bruce a new identity, not someone who was abused by his older brother as a kid, but a son of God adopted into the family of God, clothed and washed. And this is what baptism is about. It's a celebration that we go down into that water and we leave all that shame and all that evil, all of our mistakes and all the pain of our lives, we leave it in that water and we are raised to newness of life.